Welcome to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez, the podcast that offers practical advice and tips on how to run and grow your small business. The How of Business helps aspiring entrepreneurs and small business owners achieve their definition of success and overcome challenges that get in their way. This podcast series focuses on the everyday common business issues, challenges, and opportunities that face the small business owner. So here now are your hosts of The How of Business, David and Henry. This is Henry Lopez. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. My guest today is John Pollock. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So John is an entrepreneur and the CEO CEO of Financial Gravity. Uh, John has grown this business from his dining room table to a national organization and has led this company to 700% growth in one year, so phenomenal success. Uh, He's also a frequent contributor to various media outlets and is the host of his own podcast and radio show. The radio show is called Financial Gravity Radio Show, and the podcast, Financial Gravity Podcast, great podcast, had a chance to listen to some episodes in preparation. Uh, He lives in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and so in this episode, we're going to chat about his entrepreneurial journey, how he got to where he's at today, building this business that we just mentioned, and then the topic is tax tips and advice for small business owners. Uh, John is an expert in this area, and so we'll dive into that. So once again, John Pollock, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So uh, you're in the DFW area, as am I. Uh, have you, are you a native? Are you from this area originally? No, but they, you know how they say in Texas is I didn't grow up here, but I got here as fast as I can. <laughs> I, hear you. I, hear I was actually I, born I in Houston. 2002. I, 2002, okay. I came yeah. in 89. So I was born in oh, Houston, yeah. but grew up in South Florida and then came in 89. So, yeah. Very good. Very good. So let's get into it. I usually like to start uh, with the beginning of the journey kind of back in college. What did you major in in college? So this is, this is I think, one of the secrets of my success. So for all those out there, that don't have a college degree. I do not have a college degree. Um, and uh, I don't know if that's, but I do read. So uh, just because you don't have a formal education doesn't mean you should not have an education. Um, in fact, it's funny because I'm part of a, an organization called Entrepreneurs Organization. It's a worldwide organization of entrepreneurs. You have to do at least a million dollars in revenue to be able to join. And I'm the guy in the group that outreads everybody. I read four to five books a week, or excuse me, a month. And so I'm very kind of up to date on business. But I don't have a college degree. I, I started studying at a small college uh, in Los Angeles. And I, I'm, uh, this is where I, I should have known this way back then. Um, but you don't really become self-aware, <laughs> I think, until you're 35 or older. <laughs> uh, but I... I'm not wired for school. I am not wired for the classroom. I I just I can't sit there and, and learn stuff. I, I need to get out there and do it. And so I left uh, the college education and I started selling. I, I have the gift of gab and I could sell stuff and I look for products to sell and I started selling in corporate America. Yeah, very interesting. I, I do not have a college degree either uh, for various circumstances that occurred at at that point in my life, uh, namely my parents getting divorced. I did end up going to a technical school at night to get a computer programmer certificate, Uh, but I had similar challenges even as I 
had the opportunity to go back, I don't know that I could sit through no. traditional schooling anymore, right? Yeah, it's um, like I don't want to. I I learned history in high school. Why am I Why am I relearning? And that was the first two years of college for me. I and funny. The funny thing is, I'm probably maybe three to six units, like a class or two away from at least having an AA. Mm-hmm. Um, I did try to do the experience based kind of university system, and I got through the process. And then the, the university I was working with went bankrupt. Oh my! How's that for <laughs> fun? So it, that didn't work out either. So I just it, and now it's fortunate that I've I've done well enough. It just doesn't matter anymore. Oh, yeah. I don't exactly have that on a resume, but. Um, I, do, I do recognize we live in a world where the college degree is kind of a, a ticket to play. Uh, but if you're an entrepreneur and you're driven as an entrepreneur, it is unnecessary. Just read. Yeah. Uh, get. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Audible. I listen to books at 2x. So that is one of the keys to my success is I'm able to just – and then I pick topics. Right now my, my topic that I'm spending a lot of time on is gamification. I'm trying to really understand – uh, game theory, how it how it works, and then how to figure out a way to apply it to my business. And there's yeah. some very good books on. That. Yeah, no, it's an interesting topic. Yeah, I I'm the same way. I consider myself self educated in that same fashion, and and reading and listening to podcasts is a is a big source of my education and learning from others. Of course, you know, I've had the opportunity to partner with people and work with people who, from whom I've learned a lot. The reason I asked the college question is more about, there's two things. It's very fascinating to me how many people end up studying something in college and then do nothing in their career or certainly not in their entrepreneurial life. Exactly. Degree, right? Which is another reason not to go. Yeah. But the other reason I ask it is if we go back to that point in time, what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? I had no idea. I mean, I, I, in retrospect, I knew I was wired for business. I mean, when I was in my teens, I used my own money to buy Success Magazine. I had the inaugural issue. Mm. Um, so I, I was always fascinated by the entrepreneurial journey. You know, I fantasized about having a business. When I first uh, got my first kind of quasi-business, I printed business cards, and I couldn't have been more proud of having a business card. Um, you know, now we hit. Now those are that was back in the day that business cards was was not easy. Now right. you can get free on Vistaprint. <laughs> so a lot of people don't recognize how hard. I mean, getting a business card was a really big deal. Yeah, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. I had to spend a lot of money to get them, and uh, so it that I just was wired this way. And this is one of the things I tell people is, look, I don't take credit for. I take credit for working hard. I take credit for navigating the world. But there are certain things you can't take credit for and you can't really take credit for how you're wired and I'm wired for this I was built to be an entrepreneur um, there's no uh, and, and I probably didn't recognize this and probably in the last five to ten years so now I'm just kind of running with it this is who I am I'm, I'm able to run with it so the one of the pieces of advice I give people when they ask is is trust your instincts if I would have trusted my instincts 20 years ago I'd be much further along but um, I didn't I didn't I, I, I was hard on myself for not having an education. I was hard on myself for a lot of reasons, but now I just kind of embrace who I am and it, it's, you know, it's manifested itself into a lot of success. Yeah, no, I, I love that and resonates very personally with me because that, that was a similar journey for me where I knew I wanted something else. I knew I wanted to have that control, but I didn't know how to go about it. I didn't have the right guidance, certainly didn't have the experience. 
And so it took me a while as well, stumbling through. Now, I was fortunate. I had a successful sales career, <laughs> very similarly. But it took me a while to figure out what that thing was or how to take that first step. So you were in sales selling what? What did you end up selling initially? So my first sales job uh, was selling money mailer, which is still a business. Yes. It's, it's direct mail, co-op direct mail. Uh, I don't know what it, what they charge these days. It was, we were charging 500 bucks for an ad that would go into 10,000, go in a package that would be mailed to 10,000 people. At the time, uh, Money Mailer came out, they were competing with Valpac, and they were able to you know create a bigger size. They had color first. So that I sold that. I, I kind of went door to door. Yeah. To businesses, so this, so my early career was selling businesses. The classic door to door, getting rejected, cold calling, all that good stuff. It was yeah, hardcore. I I got out of my car. I I would walk. Uh, in fact, for people that are from California, I would walk Foothill. So our office was in Burbank, and then I would go up to uh, the foothills, and then I would walk one. I would get out in the morning, walk all the way down to lunch as far as I can go, just walking to business, to business, to business. And really, I was just correcting cards. Who should I talk to about advertising? Who should I talk to about advertising over and over again? And I, I realized that you're not the person who's the, you know, who's the owner, who's in charge. And I would collect the cards, and then that would take a good day. And then the next day, you'd pick up the phone and start cold calling uh, to try to get the contact name. So, uh, or to get to, to get through to the, the contact name you got from cold calling. So it was a, it was a, it was a beating. But it taught me a lot. It's one of those things that I wouldn't trade. Uh, I say that now because I'm far removed, but I'm sure while I was walking, I was thinking, this sucks. <laughs> from <laughs> I, a, from a, I hope this is the rest of my life. This is right, terrible. Exactly. From a pure uh, sales perspective, what, what's one thing you think you learned from that experience? Uh, well, I learned from my, one of the things I learned about myself is I was really good at conceptual sales because advertising is a conceptual sale. You're really not selling a copier. You know, is it does these six things better than that company, and we're cheaper. I mean, that's it's a it's a features and benefits and cost sale. I was really good at selling the non tangible. The you know, if you do this advertising, this is what it will do for you. Uh, so you know, connecting something that's tangible, a buy buy one get one free coupon with something that's tangible, which is the value of a client that you get over time. So, and, you know, you had to overcome, well, if I give people half off, then even my clients are going to, now my clients are coming back to me uh, and, and saving money, and I want them to pay full price. And <laughs> so I don't want them to pay half. So you had to overcome those kind of objections. So thinking on my th feet uh, was something I was good at, but I had to get better at it because I had to understand what the common objections were for that product. So it, it's a, uh, sales is a, is an, a, unbelievable skill everybody should have it uh, because you're selling your entire life you're selling your wife to be nice to you <laughs> you're selling your kids to listen uh, so you're selling your employees to to the vision and the dream so selling is a very very important skill uh, that people need to have it's 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 a it, they have to have it yeah so I'd say that would those are the big kind of takeaways is learning how to sell conceptually and, and learning how to overcome objections has 
those two things have carried through my whole life. Yeah, great stuff. Great point. And I completely agree. Sales is, is critical for everyone, and certainly as a, as a small business owner. So let's fast forward a little bit. You started your first business when? Oh, uh, gosh. Well, I, you know, I mowed lawns when I was a kid. So yeah, I don't know if that's starting a business. <laughs> I, was, I, I did handyman stuff. But I would say that's actually a good question. I would think uh, while I was selling Money Mailer, I, I dabbled in some other stuff. Uh, I, I was an Amway guy. I, I joined Amway real early in my young career, which was also actually a very good experience. Um, Amway is a direct sales organization. A lot of people kind of poo-poo uh, multi-level marketing, but multi-level marketing is just a another business model. So I don't know why people undermine the value of a, of a direct sales marketing organization or a multi-level marketing organization when they're legitimate businesses and they are just growing in a different way than a franchise or, or I've grown. It, they're great businesses, and I learned a ton from it. You know how to how to recognize people. Multi-level is really good at recognizing. They've kind of gamified sales. They they, they create levels. They they name the levels after gems and, and medals. And uh, each level gets you you know you're leveling up and you get more points and you make more money per client. So it's the the models actually if you if you study it is a very good uh, study in how to grow a business with low overhead. Uh, without advertising dollars. Um, so I learned a lot from that. And since I'm a student, I didn't, I, I, I deconstruct everything I'm, I do. Uh, and this is kind of a sickness as well, is that, you know, I walk into a restaurant and I'm asking myself, I mean, I was in a restaurant last night. Uh, they're selling ribeyes for 30 bucks. So that's middle of the road for a ribeye. It was in Rockwall for those people that <laughs> know, know the Dallas Metroflow. So it was out there. Yep. And, uh, but it was this casual dining environment, but it had this higher end food and they served it on a board, which is interesting. Uh, the food was insanely good. Um, and it was, it was, it was just, and they don't, they don't have any ovens. They cook everything in brick, uh, like pizza ovens, they had pizza and steak, so it's just a very interesting concept. So I'm not just in the restaurant eating food; I'm deconstructing <laughs> their business model. Yeah, I do the um, same thing, and it drives my wife crazy. Right? Yeah, oh, it drives. It's and it. What's interesting is that our type of personality is going to be attracted to an opposite. Right. It just doesn't notice any of that stuff, <laughs> and they don't care. And it's like, why do you even pay attention? And you know, I'll pick up a fork at a restaurant and go, "This is an interesting fork. I wonder why they just chose this." <laughs> Um, this fork seems cheaper than this space, or this fork seems more expensive than this type of restaurant. It drives her nuts. So, so, and I encourage people, this is the way you should see the world. You should be asking these questions constantly. When I was working at Burger King as a kid, I was wondering, you know, they Burger King was advertising the flame broiler and uh, as, as the, the better alternative. Well, I don't know if it was a better alternative or not. But I understand why they did it. They take a frozen hamburger, they stick it on a conveyor belt, and it flame broils top and bottom, and it and it drops out. It's just an easier way to cook burgers than have someone stand over a fryer and flip them. Yeah. So what they did is is kind of a, is genius. What they did is they found a faster way to cook the burgers, but then they sold it as a marketing that it's a better way. Did they? So the question is the chicken or the egg question. Did they decide to do frame broiling? Or speed or do they do it for taste we'll never know but right. that's the part of a business that you have to understand 
we make business decisions within our own business as to what to do that's best for the client and then how you market them those decisions is a whole different kind of exercise so this analytical ability of mine to kind of process even Burger King and Amway uh, and figure out what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong has really served me well and I really encourage uh, both young young entrepreneurs in age and in in time to really look at the world that's around them and ask a lot of whys. You know, why is it done this way? Could they have done it better? When I open the box, what kind of, you know, from that widget company, how could this have been presented better? I mean, one thing that Apple's done that's crazy is that their box, people were saving their boxes when they first, when they first started selling the, iP the iPods because they were just so cool. There was nothing like it. Yep. I mean, who saves boxes? Well, people were because they were just so cool. Well, that's interesting. That's a, that's a customer service experience. No one paid attention to boxes before. Now they do. Uh, so those are the type of things you have to ask as a business is, is it worth it? If I, if I come up with a better, ex more expensive box that kind of has a customer experience, is there a value there? Do I want to have a luxury experience? Do I want to have a, a, a cheap experience? Those decisions all have to be made. And, uh, and if you don't make a decision, someone's making the decision, your shipping department's making it or so you, these are stuff that you need to look at. So even if you're not detailed, which I'm not, um, I'm not detailed in execution, but I'm detailed in my ability to see stuff. Yeah. I think this is a critical point as, as you mentioned, and I agree completely to be successful. Certainly as an entrepreneur, you have to be observant. I call it intellectual curiosity, not that I came up with that term, but yeah. I think you have to be continuously aware and that's how that's how we learn and then we take it and apply it to our particular business. So I, I agree with you completely, John. Um, all right, so you started, you had a financial advising company, uh, you had a couple other businesses before it evolved into what you have now. So just tell me briefly about those businesses. So, so I, I kind of drifted in and out of independence. So I, I sold health insurance for a while and uh, then ended up getting a, a corporate sales job. Um, I had a sick child. My, my daughter got a leukemia at four, four and a half. And so that kind of changes how you, what you can and cannot do. So I couldn't take as much risk. Uh, so I took a corporate job, did that as we got through the the leukemia issues. She's now married, so a long time wow. has passed. Yeah, uh, yeah so it's amazing uh, technology, and that was back then. So, but uh, so I had that corporate job, but then when I when I kind of left again, I got back into insurance. And what happened was I actually moved to Texas in 2002 and immediately lost that corporate job, and knew nobody. I'm new. I just got here, so I was like, "What can I sell that makes the most amount of money the quickest?" Uh, I and I don't have a college degree, so now I'm not going to be able to do a resume and go out into the marketplace and say, "Ooh," because the resume. This is one of the challenges with the the business community. Small business owners aren't like this, but larger businesses they use they use your college degree as a litmus. If you don't Absolutely. have a college degree, it's like step one: Do you have a college degree? Step two: Can you do the thing that we're uh, you know want you to do? When it really shouldn't be that way, it should be step one. Can you do the thing that we want you to do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you have experience in this particular area? Yeah, but uh, yeah, that's absolutely the case. We are, doors are closed at the corporate level if you don't have a bachelor's. There's no doubt. Yeah, and it's it shouldn't be that way because the bachelor's, as, as you mentioned earlier, is that most people's bachelors had nothing to do with what they're doing now. Right. So they got a bachelor's in something that has zero value to the the, the company, but they're using that as a way to eliminate. 
uh, possible candidates. So it's just, it's kind of nuts, but that's the system we're in. At some point, you have to throw up your hands and say, that's the game. I don't like it, but that's the game. So not liking it. And that's why we change the rules and we create our own game, right? Right, and that's that's one of the reasons that entrepreneurs can do what we do. So I got into insurance sales, which then led me to realize that every year I woke up broke. I had to sell more insurance, and there was no residual. Uh, so I got into asset center management, which was a wealth management business. I grew quite a bit there, had a tremendous amount of sec- success. And then what happened was is that I started making a lot of money. And when you start making a lot of money, you start paying a lot of taxes. And one of the things I learned is that there's kind of this J curve. Uh, you double your income, but your taxes quadruple. Uh, you get 10x on income, but your taxes go up 50x. Uh, that's the tax code. The tax code is graduated. That's the way it's designed. However, part of the design is there's lots of ways that you can lower your taxes. I didn't know this, but I did keep hearing during the first uh, Obama election that that uh, the rich people don't pay their fair share. And I kept thinking, gosh, I don't know what fair is, but I could see the numbers I'm writing checks on, and this seems considerably more than fair. And when you're paying fifty to $100,000 a year in taxes, you don't think that you're not paying your fair share. You think you're getting hammered. Um, so, and, you know, and I wasn't making that much money. The business was maybe doing a half a million dollars a year, but my advertising budget was two hundred grand. but yet I still had fifty dollars to $100,000 in taxes. I it just – I didn't get it. And I kept hearing rich people don't pay their fair share. So I'm like, I don't know if they have some super secret – decoder ring <laughs> that allows them not to pay their fair share. But I got to figure out what they're doing not to pay their fair share because I want to not pay my fair share. So the natural place to go for taxes is the CPA firm. So I started interviewing CPAs only to find out they all basically said the same thing. You make what you make, you pay what you pay. There's really nothing you can do about it. But I didn't accept that. And so this is where the entrepreneurial brain kind of kicked in. Wait a second. I'm hearing that rich people don't pay their fair share. But the experts are saying there's nothing you can do about it. That seems like a cognitive dissonance. There's a, there's a problem there. So what are the rich people doing? They must be doing something. Who are they hiring? How are they doing this? Uh, and that's where the, the journey really began. Um, and it upended my life because once I discovered that taxes was the CPA industry as a whole doesn't know anything about taxes. It's one of the, the strangest business problems. The entire country thinks an entire industry does a thing the entire industry is not only not trained to do, they don't know how to do. How's that for a strange business problem? Right. I mean, imagine that everyone thought chiropractors did open heart surgery and you had a heart murmur and they said, oh, go to a chiropractor. That's just as, as insane it is. The accounting industry is not trained. There's not a single question on the CPA exam on how to lower personal income taxes for anybody. But yet that's who everybody goes to. So it's a really strange business problem. Yeah, but uh, let, me, let me challenge you for a moment just on a little bit on that, John, because I think it, it does to some extent depend on it CPA by CPA, because I agree with you that, that by and large CPAs I've interacted with over my entrepreneurial career are, they understand the tax code but they're about, as you've spoken in, on other shows and on your show, they're really doing the accounting of it by the tax laws, by the code, but they're not helping you in how you could better position yourself or avoid certain tax situations. But I have CPAs who do offer that. So they are, they do exist, 
And so, but it's just on average and typically most CPAs are not able to help you with that. So I just wanted to add that perspective. Right, and, 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 I'll, and I'll tell you, I mean, we own a company called Tax Coach Software. There's 600 CPAs and EAs on that platform and exactly. they're being taught That's right. how to do uh, proactive tax planning. So uh, there is, there are some companies, there's some organizations out there that are trying to solve this problem. Yeah. But 600 out of 600,000 is really the tip of the iceberg. And it still goes back to the education. The CPA is not trained to do tax planning. If they end up learning it, that's different. The C There's not a single question on tax as it relates to an individual on this CPA exam. It's an accounting exam. It's how do I depreciate a building? How do I handle inventory? It is general account accepted accounting principle test. And most small business owners don't really care about gap accounting. They don't care. They don't care to know the difference between cash and accrual. Uh, they they don't know. They don't know how to read a balance sheet and a profit and loss statement. So, the CPA doesn't bring them value from an accounting standpoint. And what's interesting is that a number will go into a box, and I and I will liken it to like a factory worker doing the same thing over and over again. If I make a half a million dollars and I give ten percent to my church. That's $50,000. Well, the CPA will put that $50,000 on a line that says charity. It says charity, and then there's an open box. And you put in that box how much I gave to charity, $50,000. It's on the Schedule A. The problem is is that because I make a half a million and I'm using the Schedule A to reduce my taxable income on the half a million, that will trigger the alternative minimum tax. So, but the CPA doesn't know this. This is what's so challenging. Some do, but most don't. It is the CPA doesn't know that by by putting the charitable contribution on the Schedule A, it's actually increasing my taxes, not lowering it. And the question then I would say, is there a place in the tax code where I can legally, morally, and ethically move that charitable contribution so that it doesn't trigger the AMT and it gets me the full deduction, which Schedule A does not do either? And the answer is yes, but most CPAs don't know how to do that because they've never been trained. They've been trained to put the five, the $50,000 in donations in this specific box. So they will put it in that box over and over and over again. CPAs, by and large, are historians. So like you said, there's always exceptions to every rule, uh, but by and large, so this is an interesting problem. So if I am a small business owner that wants to help I want to lower my personal income taxes, the natural place to go is CPAs. But if only one in a hundred, actually the statistics right now is we have 600 out of 600,000. So <laughs> if one in a, a you know, 100,000 is the one that I can get to that will help me, how am I going to find that guy? They all say they do tax planning, but they don't all do tax planning. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult problem from us as a business standpoint because if I advertise that I do tax planning, a lot of people will say, well, I already have a CPA. If I go to a cocktail party and, and someone asks me what you do, and I say, I help small business owners lower their personal income taxes, the first question out of their mouth is, are you CPA? Right. So it's a really interesting business problem where yeah, – It's a big challenge, and it's got to be a big challenge for you. But So let's keep going down this path, but I just want to make sure that I we, we disclaim here, neither you nor I are either tax attorneys nor CPAs, if we just, as we just clarified. Right. And my opinion, as I always give advice when I do give advice to small business owners, is that you should seek proper counsel, whether that's a tax attorney 
or a CPA. What we're talking about here on this show is there are lots of things that your average CPA does not know about and that you should at least take away. What I'm hoping the listener will take away from this episode is to think about these things, ideally perhaps contact you, get this kind of information, arm themselves with it, educate themselves so they can at least qualify their CPA to see if that person, he or she can give them this kind of guidance, if they're equipped and educated on this topic. So that's what I want the listener to take away, but I want to make sure that the listener understands that my advice is not that you avoid a CPA. It is not that you avoid a tax attorney. If you believe that's what you need, I always recommend that you seek that kind of counsel. But what we're going to talk about here, continue to talk about in this episode, is some things that I think that most business owners are not even aware of and that should at least become to educate themselves on these topics. Would you agree with that, John? I would. Uh, I would also add to that. So what we'll do, I guess, for the rest of the show is talk a little bit about tax strategies. And I will tell you how to broach the subject with your CPA or right. tax attorney. If they do not like the strategy, then frankly, you'll, you'll need to fire them. Yeah, because exactly. the stuff that I'm giving you is inside the Internal Revenue Code. Some of the strategies you, we use are 50 plus years old and CPAs, when we do a, a tax strategy and we send it back to the CPA, the number one response is we are not comfortable with this and we'll come back with, which is by the way, that helped us build our business model because we the originally we were thinking, we know what, we'll do the tax strategy design, we'll use the software that we're using to design it, we'll show the CPAs, the internal revenue code, the information will go back to CPA. The CPA will go, wow, this is fantastic. This company saved my client $20,000 in taxes, and they increased the complexity of the business, which means I actually make more money. I think I'm going to send more clients to financial gravity. That didn't happen, uh, which is strange to me. As a, as a business owner, if, if, if somebody else's business was sending me a client of mine back to me, with a better plan that made me more money, I would wanna figure out a way to partner with that company. That's not what happened when, when, with real early. So what we had to do, instead of the old saying, if you can't beat them, join them, we tried to join them. And the, uh, we kept hearing over and over again, I'm not comfortable with that. And we can talk about some of the specific strategies that happened on, but I'm not comfortable with that. So we basically built a model to do the work that they were unwilling to do. Okay, so do you? Uh, does your company offer tax preparation as well? Yep. Okay. We had to. Yeah. Because yeah. what? So if I if I tell you, if I say Henry, what I recommend is I think you should set up a, a family management company and put part of your business inside that family management company so that you can write off all your medical expenses, which you can't do inside of an S corp, uh, but you can do it inside of a C or sole proprietor. And so I make those recommendations to you. And you take that to your CPA and the CPA says, well, I'm not comfortable making these changes. And you're thinking to yourself, but this will save me $20,000 in taxes. This guy's not comfortable saving me $20,000 in taxes. And financial gravity has shown me that this is all legal and moral. And we would go back to CPAs and ask them, is there anything we're doing that's illegal? Well, no. How about immoral or ethical? No. So why won't you do it? I'm just not comfortable with it. So we just decided, okay, we can't join these, these guys. And this happened, by the way so many times that it just got ridiculous. So we decided to pull it in house. So we now do bookkeeping, we own a payroll company, uh, we do tax returns, it's included in our model. But we will partner with uh, progressive CPAs, which there's not a lot of them, but we'll partner with them um, because we we own a company that partners with them. So uh, 
so anyway, so that's that's kind of how we got to this point. Is it's it's we got into the tax preparation, bookkeeping, and payroll business because the CPA industry was unwilling to implement legal, moral, and ethical strategies. Okay, so let's let's talk about a few more of these examples. You have, for example, a publication called Ten Biggest Tax Myths." Can you touch on a couple of those and let's chat about some of those types of myths that you see out there? Yeah, so. I would so since so since you have a lot of small business owners and new entrepreneurs in your audience, I'd like to to talk a little bit about business structure. Um, most people start out as a sole proprietor. They will uh, put all their numbers on what's called the Schedule C on your tax return. The Schedule C, and this is this is mind blowing, but the Schedule C is five times more likely to be audited than any other business. So a sole proprietor is five times more likely to be audited if you do 100000 in gross revenue, which is not a huge business. And where do those stats come from, John? Uh, the IRS. <laughs> the Internal Revenue Service. They are five times more likely to audit a sole proprietor doing $100,000 than they would an S-Corp. The IRS- so I, I obviously, and I, my listeners know this, and certainly my clients know this, is I never recommend anybody operate as a sole proprietor. Do you, is there any time where you think there's a reason why there's an advantage to operate as a sole proprietor? There is a reason to have a sole proprietor as a separate entity, but the S-Corp should be the primary entity. Okay. And one of the things we also will, will point out is there's a lot of confusions around the LLC, is the LLC is a legal entity. If you set up an LLC, the default position is a sole proprietor, and this is why I spend some time on the Schedule C, is a lot of people say, well, I'm not a sole proprietor and I'm LLC, and then they'll come into the office and all their stuff is on the Schedule C. The reason for that is, is an LLC is a legal entity and it has nothing to do with the taxable entity. And I'll even do this in conferences. I'll have people raise their hand. Who here is an LLC? People will raise their hand. Who here files as an LLC? Same group will raise their hand. Guess what? It's a trick question. Nobody can file as an LLC. There's no such thing as a taxable entity. There are five taxable entities, sole proprietor, S-corp, C-corp, partnership, and disregarded entity. You have to select it. The default position is sole proprietor. So if you just set up an LLC and you don't check a box, which by the way is what most attorneys will do, is they'll just set the LLC up and then they'll leave it up to the, the accountant to check the box. But in most cases, accountants will just go with what the lawyer has already set up. Right, but a you're not saying an LLC is bad. We just got to make sure that we have the right election so that it generates a K-1. Yeah, I highly encourage the LLC, in fact, because it allows you to, to switch. Uh, so you, if you're uh, an LLC sole proprietor right now and you find out by looking at your tax return that you're filing on a, a Schedule C, you can check a box and make it an S. And right now is a good time because it's the beginning of the year. So, And a simple alternative is if you've, if you've been instead passing a K-1 to your personal return, that that's what you want to be looking at instead of a Schedule C. Well, maybe. So one of the things that we'll do is we'll recommend that, that depending on the size of the business, a real small business, you want to you keep it as simple as possible. But the bigger you get, you may want to create two entities. So like right now, and I don't know when this will air, but we're, I don't mind sharing what we're talking about this. We're talking about this during uh, one day before the inauguration of Trump. So by the time this airs, we're going to get a, an idea of what's going on with the new tax code. Whether Trump got elected or Hillary got elected, there was going to be changes to the tax code. That's just what every, every new president says the other person was bad, and we're going to change it. That's just 
That's the nature of things. Right. Although even when, when there are going to be changes, it takes a while for those changes to take effect. Oh, yes. I mean, yeah. So. so one of the things, though, is he's talking about is changing some of the rules around C-Corps. Right now, the C-Corp has got a 35% taxable rate. It's the highest in the world. The United States should not want to be number one in taxes. <laughs> they should be number one in something else. Uh, so, But if he, let's say he lowers it to 10%. There's still the double taxation problem. But if he lowers it to 10%, 10% the C-Corp is going to become very popular very fast. Uh, so one of the ch things we, we may do, and like with my business, we have C-Corps and S-Corps. So we really don't care who gets elected because we can shift how the dollars flow at any time. But a lot of small business owners may want to change depending on what is coming. So that's where having someone that's really proactive that knows the tax code and knows how to play the new games because basically we're just going to get a whole the, – the, the rule book is 70,000 pages right now. Uh, typically when there's changes, there's changes to rates first, which doesn't really change the rule book. Uh, so even when Obama raised taxes – most of our clients pay less money in taxes under Obama than they did at Bush. And the only reason is that is because at Bush, it was kind of the, the frog in the pot problem. Is they're like, well, I, this is, these are the tax codes. But then there was a shock to the system, and all of a sudden taxes rose, and then people were concerned about taxes. And then all of a sudden they come to us, and they end up paying less under the new tax code than they did under the old tax code. And that's what's going to happen with uh, the Trump. Even if he lowers taxes – if you do tax planning on top of the lower taxes, you basically get a double down. You get to make twice as much money. Yeah. So, John, let me let me uh, move us along because we can talk we can talk for for hours on the whole entity creation and the type oh, yeah. of entity. You've given us some great tips there. What else on this list of ten biggest tax myths can we chat about that applies to small business owners? That the the uh, home office is a is a red flag. And it's, it's not. It's, in fact, there's several ways you can write off a home office. Uh, one of our favorites is it's great for shows because it's, it's kind of got a, a little bit of sex appeal. But it's, uh, it's the 14-day rental rule. You can rent, especially with Airbnb being as big as it is, is you can rent your house 14 days a year tax-free. So you can rent a room 14 days a year tax-free. You, you don't have to claim it. Uh, in fact, you can rent your house to yourself. So I can rent my house for $1,000. Let's say I throw a holiday party. I rent the house to myself for $1,000. The company writes the check for $1,000. It's a tax deduction because it's a business expense. It comes to me, John Pollock, and I do not have to claim that as income. It's been in, This has been the 14-day rental rule. Also, you can Google it. It's called the Augusta rule. So this is a great litmus test. You go to a, a CPA and say, hey, I heard this podcast about this 14-day rental rule where I can rent my house to myself uh, 14 days a year. I think I want to do that. Can you help me? If they say no or we don't like it or it's a red flag, they should be fired because it is not a red flag. It has not been a red flag for decades, um, and it's one of four ways to write off a home office. The another two are the business use percentages. So one of the issues that I was told in the past, and it may have been again a myth or fact, and that has changed, is that one of the potential things you have to consider with detecting home office is the effect it has on the cost basis of your home when you go to sell it. So tell me about that and how how you can avoid that, or if that's really something to be considered. So there's four ways to write off a home office. One is depreciation. That's the one you just mentioned. The other two 
the rental rule, which is 14 days. But if you have a home office, you're going to probably use it more than 14 days. The other two are business use percentage. So you can avoid the recapture by not using a depreciation, you basically using business use percentage. And what that does is it allows you to write off a percentage of a lot of things, power, uh, your, your lawn, your gardener. You can write off your, your, pool, your pool cleaning company if you have a pool. Um, so there's it ends up, ends up adding a lot of stuff. But the business use percentage, and this is what's interesting, is that it actually makes sense. So if I live in New York and I have a three-bed, two-bath house, it's going to be smaller than a Texas three-bed, two-bath house. So the tax code allows for that. So in New York, I may want to write off square footage because one of those bedrooms is a bigger percentage of the overall house. Where in Texas, one of those bed bedrooms is not a bigger off big percentage of the overall house because we have you know 50 rooms in our McMansions here. Right. <laughs> um, so <laughs> so we may want to write off a percentage. So well, we have a three bedroom house. One per one of those bedrooms is being used for an office we're going to use the bedroom percentage the number of of room percentage instead of the square footage percentage and what what qualifies as a home office tell us a little bit about that since we're on this topic yeah it's it's anything so i mean we've had clients that have written off uh their dining rooms because and they've written off they got the the dining room retiled because they had they were running a multi-level business it was actually a cincy business uh, the, the warming things, yeah. and uh, she had so many people traipsing through her house that it was damaging the carpet. So she ripped the carpet out and put in hardwood, and we wrote it off because that whole room, and there's no IRS agent that would walk into her dining room and think it was a dining room. They would know, yeah, it's is stacked with boxes and stacked with wax and warmers, and there's no dining going on in this dining room. It is definitely an office. So you know, if you're using it as an office and you're being reasonable about it, then you should be writing it off. John, what's the most common question you get when you first meet with a small business client on taxes? What's one of the more common questions you get? Is this going to increase my risk of audit? That's the number one question we get. So we always ask, we always kind of push the question back. Uh, if I go from here to downtown Dallas, and I don't go above the speed limit, I stop at every red light, stop at every stop sign, what is my risk of getting a ticket? Zero, right. because I'm following the law. Right. So why would I be audited for using the tax code that was given to us to follow? All we have to do is follow the rules. So let's, let's kind of use an example of following the rules with another another strategy. Uh, the medical expense reimbursement plan. There's a lot of talk about Obamacare. Rates are going up 20%, 40%. But the funny thing is, is there's a 53-year-old part of the tax code that can offset the cost of Obamacare. So we can actually neuter Obamacare with laws that are already on the books. I can write off my, my glasses, my braces, my my dental work, chiropractic, massages, all of that is in the code where I can write that off as a business expense that's legal. Uh, and a lot of people aren't using it. A lot of people think, well, gosh, I don't know if I want to write all this stuff off. Gosh, if I write off a massage, I'm going to get audited. You're not. You're, use, you're setting up a, a structure which is required. You have to set up the paperwork. You have to have some documents in a file somewhere so that if you do get audited, because audits are primarily uh, random, all you do is show them the paperwork and they'll say, okay, 
Let, let's let's touch on that because that's such a critical point, I think, John, the record keeping on all of this, regardless of whether you take these strategies or not, touch on that and what you advise to your clients on that topic. Yeah, so think of the IRS. First of all, the IRS is a collection agency, uh, plain and simple. I mean, that's, that's what they are. So they're going to collect on those people that are easiest to collect on. One of the reasons I think the Schedule C is so audited is that it, it kind of shows that you don't know what you're doing because mm. it's so easy to get off the Schedule C and be a business and save a ton of money. If you're paying a dollar in self-employment tax, you can eliminate the self-employment tax by getting off the Schedule C. Very simple. Uh, so that's probably why they target it. But the IRS is a collection agency first. So as a collection agency, they're looking for people that are making mistakes that are easy for them to collect. And they're a lazy collection agency and they're a very busy collection agency. So if you even have one piece of paperwork done right, they're going to like, okay, well, this, this person's got it. They're good. If they call our, our office on an audit, we're going we're gonna to represent you, and we're going to call back, and, and they're just going to leave you alone because, okay, these guys get it. They set up the documentation. Um, so it's like with the 14-day rental rule. What's the documentation? Well, you got to prove that if you're going to rent your house yourself for $1,000, that's worth $1,000. So how do you do that? Well, you just call the local hotel. And find out what it costs to rent a conference room with a kitchen uh, where you can throw a holiday party. And it's going to probably cost about $1,000 uh, before the food gets put in. So you can now say, I called uh, Holiday Inn. They're $1,000 for their conference room. I'm going to charge $1,000 for my house. We just documented it. So now all of a sudden something that seems a little risky, as long as we follow the law. And the IRS is all about the letter of the law. They're not about the spirit of the law. Uh, they don't care about the spirit, what the law was originally intended to do. They care about is, are you doing the check boxes? The biggest one is uh, hiring your kids. We tell a lot of people they need to put the kids on the payroll because if I move $5,000 out of my corporation and I pay it to my kid, the tax is zero because their tax bracket at a $5,000 in income is zero. In fact, it's even better in the fact that there's no FICA tax if I pay my child. If I pay your child, there's a FICA. If I pay mine, there isn't. So this is a this is a, a huge savings. Well, someone may say to me is my kid doesn't do a lot of work. Well, what does the IRS say an employee is? Well, they say it's three things. Number one, do you have a contract? Do you have something that says this is a job description? Number two, is the money going through payroll? So is all the stuff that needs to be deducted deducted? In this case, nothing needs to be deducted, but we pay through payroll. Number three, does it go into their checking account? If the answer is yes to those three things, they're an employee. Notice they don't follow employees around to see if the, the contract they have is what they're doing. Right. So it's that's not part of the IRS. They're, they're, asked, they're basically seeing if you're documenting it correctly. Yeah. And that's the way the letter of the law works. If you follow these three steps, they are legally an employee. Now, we don't say, well, don't have anybody do anything. Uh, we don't want to encourage that. But at the same time, it's really good to have your kids working in your business. Yeah. So it's yeah. a twofer. Yeah, it's such an important point. Again, this is a conversation I have with my clients, especially first-time business owners in particular, is that the burden of proof is on us. So documentation is what we need to be able to prove why we took all these deductions. And you need to have that in an orderly fashion such that you can find it a couple years later or whatever period of time later. And we forget what, why, how we calculated something or what, why we decided to deduct that. And it's just a simple 
matter of documenting that, keeping some records, and I'm sure you you help your clients with that. Yeah, and record keeping is getting super easy now. Uh, so since you're you're a, a salesman from back in the day, we'll we'll tell a back in the day story <laughs> that will make all the whippersnappers annoyed. Right. Uh, back in the day, we used to keep this little book in our glove box. And we would have to take the book out when we left the, the driveway in the morning. And then we would have to take it out when we pulled into the driveway and we had to record the mileage. Well, there's maps. There's apps for that now. Uh, there's, a, there's, there's a great one called Mile IQ. You, I leave and I drive from my house to my office. And as soon as, I, when I, as soon as I stop, it knows and it pops up a message. I swipe right if it's business. I swipe left if it's personal. If it's personal, it just goes away. Right. If it's business, it pops up and, and it has you populate what you just did. Yeah. Amazing. It's I wish I would have so had easy. that I, back in the oh day. Oh, my goodness. I know. Trying to keep track of all that. and whew, Yeah, it's, it's just technology has made this record keeping so much easier, and therefore yeah. there's no excuse. Um, yeah, it backs up the Dropbox. I mean, it's just insane. So you just – and you basically, at the end of the year, you just click on it, and it has all the data right there. It even calculates the the, the amount of of mileage that you get to reduce. Uh, you reduce your taxes by. But sometimes we'll recommend not keeping track of mileage and leasing a car instead. So there's we'll always look at what what's how someone lives and make sure we orient the tax plan around the way they live. Yeah. All right, we could talk about this for hours, uh, but we'll start to wrap it up. Certainly, if you want more of this, uh, we'll talk about in a moment where you can go online and certainly go to the show notes page for this episode. But, of course, you've got a couple things. You've got the radio show for those of you in the local DFW area. Actually, we canceled the radio show recently, so we are that is off the oh, air. Oh, it is. Okay, okay. But you have the podcast, yeah, we went, so the podcast is yeah, available. Yeah, we went to the podcast. I found it yeah. on iTunes. What other platforms? Stitcher. Stitcher. Excellent. So that's the Financial Gravity Podcast. Search for that on iTunes. And he's got a whole series of episodes on all kinds of different topics. As we do with this show, he brings on different guests and they do deeper dives on particular topics. So that, at least as a starting point to our listeners, if this this is if you're listening this far into the show, then we've gotten your attention. John has gotten your attention. I would recommend at a minimum, as we were talking about at the outset, educate yourself, dive into this, learn more about this, and then start challenging and making sure that you have the right professionals advising you on this stuff. That's my recommended big takeaway. Uh, let's take a personal turn here as we start to wrap it up, John. Can you think of a, a decision that you made in your life at some point in the past that now you realize has had significant impact on your personal life and on your business, if you think back to a significant decision that you made that has had a big impact on your life? This is an easy one. Uh, there's not a lot of, I've always hated that question because I was like, gosh, there's really nothing. I mean, for me, life had been so incremental. But when I picked up the book Traction and read about the entrepreneurial operating system, it changed everything. So our business has been running on that for three to four years now, and most of the growth has come as a direct result of that. I went from a business doing about a half a million dollars a year. Uh, now we're publicly traded, so you can look us up, and we actually have a stock symbol. So we're, we're, that came as a direct result of I'm a visionary. I can drive a lot of things, but I'm not good at executing. So I needed some sort of system to help me run my business better. And there's a few out there that are really good, um, but the entrepreneurial operating system has been a complete and utter 
I, I hate to use it, game changer, <laughs> but it has. So, it, so Traction it, was it, the book that introduced you to it? I'm not familiar with the book. Who's the author? Uh, Gina Wickman. So Traction. And so if you are a kind of an analytical person, I would read Traction because it's kind of a cookbook. Do this, do this, do this. If you don't like that kind of read and you would prefer a story, just tell me a story. That's what I am. I'm, I'm a, just tell me a story. So I read Traction. And I was like, I don't know if I'm going to implement this. And then I read uh, Get a Grip, which is kind of the allegory form of traction. And then that kind of tells a story and then weaves in the, 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 the tools and techniques to run your business better. And what's done is it spawned other books. Uh, spawned a book called Rocket Fuel, which was written by a traction uh, EOS implementer, an, an entrepreneurial operating system implementer named Mark Winters. And he wrote a, a book on the the – the difference between the visionary and the integrator and how those two roles need to work closely together. Otherwise, there's no success. There is no Walt Disney without Roy Disney. There's no Steve Jobs without Tim, Tim Cook. There always has to be a visionary and integrator. Integrator is usually the less known person, but the integrator is really the person that everyone should know because they're the ones that made the dream reality. Right. Uh, there's another book called – just came out a couple weeks ago called Earn It from another EOS uh, implementer named Jill Young, and she – designed it as a book to give to employees. If a employee wants to raise, you hand them the earn it book and say, there's some exercise in here. Come back to me after you've read it. It takes two weeks. It's like an 80-page book, so it's a breezy read, but it's got some exercise in there that teaches the employee how to add value to the organization. So without question, the entrepreneurial operating system uh, and Gina Wickman have changed my life. I should have known that when I asked you about books, you were going to give me lots of information, right? Because oh, yeah, we, I we both those, love books. I, I think that's I one of the key books. takeaways, as you mentioned at the outset, John. You have to always keep learning as an entrepreneur. That never mm -hmm. stops. And, and reading uh, for both of us has been a great source of our education. Yep, I agree. Okay. So last parting thought, piece of advice to our audience, either someone who's looking to become an entrepreneur or the small business owner like myself that's always looking for tips and advice. It could be on this whole tax topic, but what comes to mind here is a parting thought. I talked about this real early on, but uh, trust your instincts. Uh, once you understand who you are and what you're good at, trust your instincts around that thing. Uh, there's this tendency, especially when we're younger, is to say, well, I'm not an expert, but you're an expert at your thing. So be the expert at that thing. Hire an experts at other things like whether it be taxes or, or marketing or whatever it is, um, but trust your instincts. We've hired marketers that design programs that I just didn't think would work. I didn't think the message would resonate, but I just went with them because, after all, they're experts in marketing, but they're not experts in my product. So they ended up failing. I should have listened to my instincts. So if I, if I could go back and recapture 20 years ago and start listening to my instinct. I have no idea where I'd be now. So I, I really encourage people to trust themselves a little bit more earlier in their lives because that'll pay dividends later. Yeah, love that advice. And where would you like our listeners to go online to find out more about you and Financial Gravity? So financialgravity.com is simple. There's also a, a way – and you'll get a, an, an offer for a free ebook. Uh, there's another way to get it is you text to 33444 the word taxbook, one word taxbook to 33444 and you'll get an email or a link uh, request for an email send the email and then we'll send you a copy of the 10 biggest tax myths so you can get a free book that covers some of these topics as well as many more yeah great offer we'll have links to all of that if you didn't catch that on the show notes page as well as all of the book recommendations 
All of that will be on the show notes page for this episode at thehowofbusiness.com. And definitely encourage you to download that book. Again, to this point of, I challenge you to think about these things, educate yourself, and then decide how you want to move forward with the information. But it's a, it's a great, easy, brief read that will get your thinking even more so on this topic. John, it's been wonderful and uh, enlightening and educational having you on the show. Thanks for taking the time to be with us today. My pleasure. This is Henry Lopez. You've been listening to another episode of The How of Business. If you're listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we would welcome and thank you for subscribing to our show. And we look forward to having you join us on the next episode of The How of Business. Thank you for listening to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez. We hope you found practical ideas to help you start, manage, and grow your business. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a comment on iTunes and go by levantebusinessgroup.com and learn more about Levante's resources to help you with your small business. Until next time, thanks for listening and go live your dream.